My aim today is going to be to expound just a little slice of the doctrine of God and to explain the kind of impact that doctrine ought to have on our churches. I'm going to draw from the TGC confessional statement, which uh, you have it printed there above your lyrics to Immortal Invisible. It's the, the first article in the TGC con confessional statement, which the, the whole TGC confessional statement, if you're not familiar, it's actually uh, from the minds of Tim Keller and, and Don Carson, and it's, it's drawn from a lot of the historic reform confessions throughout the last 400 years. If you're not familiar, documents like the Second Helvetic Confession, the Belgic Confession, those are from the 1500s, and the, the Westminster and the London Confessions from the 1600s. In all of those confessions, you will find lots of similar language that you'll find in the TGC Confessional Statement. Your own statements of faith in your churches are heavily influenced by these kinds of documents, whether you realize it or not. If you, if you believe in orthodox doctrine of God, it, you are influenced by, by these confessions. And it's especially on the doctrine of God that all of us in the evangelical world especially are going to be influenced by these good confessions of faith. One thing that every reformer and every Puritan would want you to know, because I know what they were all thinking, what every single one of them would want you to know is that they were not trying to come up with anything new. When, when they put their minds together, especially when they wrote these different confessions, nobody in the 16th and 17th century was trying to invent any new doctrines. And the doctrine of God in TGC's confessional statement is the apostolic doctrine of God. It's supposed to be very small c Catholic. It's supposed to be something that if you're a Christian, you should be able to agree on this, but it, it is much more thorough than, than most Christians would think about today. So we would do well to pay attention to some of these truths. If we get nothing else right in our churches, we ought to get the doctrine of God right. So let me... Let me pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all that means for our lives and our churches, please help me in my weakness now to expound some of these truths accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read this article from the TGC statement. It's on the triune God. That triune, it's a good word. If you don't use it at your church, every once in a while it's good to introduce words like triune. It's a really good word. Triune, three, one, threeness, oneness of God. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in his love and in his holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, he perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. This is who God is. This is who TGC Hawaii hopes and prays that all of you will teach and preach in your church this vision of God. So to uphold this view of God, I want to exhort you to three things in your church. In this talk on the Trinity, I feel like I should exhort you to three things to uphold this view of God. Number one, be as passionately Trinitarian as you can. Be as passionately Trinitarian as you can. The first sentence of the confession is really a great summary of the doctrine of the Trinity. There's many ways Christians have articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. This is, a, this is really a good sentence to, to summarize the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll just expound some of these phrases in this first sentence. It says, we believe in one God. You don't have the doctrine of the Trinity unless you believe in one God. Again, this is a triunity. Triunity. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of our faith. And not just this, it's not just the Christian religion that holds to this. There are a few other monotheistic religions. Uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Jehovah's Witnesses all agree that this universe is a universe in which there's just one God. That does mean we need to challenge our Hawaiian friends who may they claim to be Christians, but are also holding on to worshiping their many family gods. And that, of course, would go for any polytheistic religion, including the Mormon religion, which, if you're not familiar, is one of the most polytheistic religions that exists. Christianity cannot coexist with polytheism. What this also means, though, is we don't worship you, you know this, but we don't worship a tri-trine God. He's triune. Three in one. One in three. Anytime we overemphasize the distinctions between the three, we run the risk of tri-theism, the worship of three gods. That, that is absolutely heretical. So we really have to fight for the reality that there is one God, which necessarily means there's one being. When we talk about God, we are talking about one being who is God, one nature 
one essence, one will. There is only one divine will because there's just one mind of God. We believe in one God eternally existing in three. So see why it's, it's just so succinct all right there. One God eternally existing in three. I love the language of eternally existing in three. There was never a time when any one of the three was not. All three have eternally existed. They all three are the one creator God. This obviously strikes against all the cults who would ever make the Son or the Spirit creations of the Father in any sense or on any level. Eternally existing means you cannot point to a moment in time. When was that moment when one of them wasn't there? You just can't point to that moment. All three eternally. This one God is and always has been three persons. Next, they are equally divine persons. The Son and the Spirit are not lesser than the Father in any sense whatsoever. There's actually been a lot of debate surrounding this issue in recent years. There are many good evangelicals who we will see in heaven, but they believe that the Son is eternally submissive in function to the Father. They're not arguing. There are many good Christians who hold to this, the eternal functional submission of the Son, and, and none of them would argue that the Son was created. They understand. They agree with us. The Son is not, cannot be created. But they would argue that even in eternity past, it is simply in the nature of the Son to submit to the Father. They would even say the Father has an authority. You talk about submission, you're talking about authority, submission. The Father has in their minds an authority that the Son does not have. Once you start to say that one person of the Trinity, once you start to say that one person possesses something that one of the other two does not have. You are getting dangerously close with messing with the nature of who God is. A lot of this flows from the doctrine of divine simplicity, which is also a historic doctrine, it's part of the historic doctrine of God. God, all that God possesses is who he is. So you can't talk about one of the persons of the Trinity having something that one of the others does not have. You might object, doesn't the Son submit to the Father? Of course he does. In redemptive history, he does. In, in redemptive history, the, the submission of the Son is a part of the gospel story. but it is not a part of the nature of the Son. In fact, the divine nature of the Son 
is what makes the submission of the Son in redemptive history so unfathomable. Next, we call the three Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons. So if you want to talk about the personhood of each of the three, you distinguish them all day long. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the Son, as the Bible would talk about him, he, he's the, the only begotten Son. He, he's, he's born. He's the only one, the only unique Son born of the Father. But of course, because he's God, theologians have understood that has to mean he is eternally generated, eternally born from the Father. In other words, there was not a time in history where he was not born. You have to go back to eternity. He's eternally begotten. So there never was a time when he was not begotten. And yet, eternally, he was. That's who the Son is. And similarly, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. They really are three distinct persons. You have to guard the language of them being three distinct persons, but you have to guard the language of them being eternally existing as those three because all three are God. Next, there is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who know, love, and glorify one another. That's, that's a great way to think of the Trinity. They, the three exist, and they know, glorify, and love. They know, love, and glorify one another. That's who they are. They are in perfect relationship. God is love is at the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity because God is love even before he created the world because God eternally has existed. The Father, Son, and Spirit has eternally existed to know, love, and glorify one another. They are in perfect relationship. So even before God created the world, God is love. God is love is not merely because God so loved the world. God is love because God is a trinity. That's really the doctrine of the nutshell, uh, the doctrine of the trinity in a nutshell. Just a couple comments on where this all comes from biblically. So I'm going to exhort you with three things, and with each one I'll explain a little, give you a little scriptural backing, and then give you some implications just a couple comments on where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from biblically. First of all, the terms Son of God and Holy Spirit, those are biblical terms. And those terms by themselves pretty much prove all you need to know about who the Son is and who the Spirit is. Son of God actually means He is the Son of the Father. He has the same... He has the same nature as his father. All sons have the same nature as their father. And Jesus is the unique son, eternally born of the father. He has the exact same nature as his father. If you have the same nature as God the father, you're God. And Holy Spirit, you realize that term means 
the Spirit has the same holy nature as God the Father and God the Son. Just the name Holy Spirit in its truest sense means the Spirit is God as well. And then Louis Burkhoff argues that the way the Trinity is presented to us in Scripture is more in these big concepts. There's lots of individual verses you can go to to talk about the deity of the Father and the deity of the Son and the deity of the Spirit and all these passages about their unity as well. But you just take ideas like the God in the Old Testament is presented as Redeemer and Savior. And then the Son in the New Testament fills the role of Redeemer and Savior. Or God in the Old Testament is presented as the one who dwells in the temple and revives the heart of his people, Isaiah 57. And then the Spirit in the New Testament fills the role of dwelling in the church and awakening the hearts of God's people. So the Trinity is simply the doctrine that helps make sense of who God is in Scripture. A few implications for our churches. I got three of them. Three implications for your churches. Number one, and this is all part of point number one, so after I get through these implications, one-third of the way done. Implications of this doctrine of the Trinity, number one, non-Trinitarians. Non-Trinitarians must know they are not a part of us. They, they must know there's a difference between us and them. If, if you don't hold to the Trinity, you're not a Christian. They need to know that. A Mormon or a Muslim must not think. Now, you can't control what they all think, but, but you need to do your level best to make sure they... They don't come away from your church thinking, oh yeah, we all believe in the same God. They can't. You, you can't. you can't let that slide. And by that I just mean be explicitly Trinitarian, especially in your worship services. Recite creeds. So the historic creeds all uphold the doctrine of the, the, the Trinity. Sing songs that make the Trinity clear. There are tons of songs that, that do this for us. Make sure prayers are Trinitarian. You know, you, you want to be careful. I mean, God knows what you mean, but you want to be careful in saying, God, thank you for dying on the cross, you know, or, or Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Make sure you don't say stuff like that, you know, the, the Son died on the cross, not the Father. You, you want to make sure you're, you're praying accurately. Your statement of faith should be Trinitarian. No Trinity, no Christianity. Second implication, make sure your gospel proclamation is Trinitarian. The Father sent the Son to die. The Father and the Spirit raised the Son from the dead. Actually, the Son at one point says, I, take my, I lay my life down and I take it up again. Really, the Trinity is involved in the resurrection but explicitly, the Father raised His Son from the dead and the Spirit raises the Son from the dead as well in, in New Testament scriptures. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit to dwell in His people. These are all great, glorious gospel, core gospel tenets that are all, the, the Trinity is a part, it actually upholds the gospel story. If, if you don't have the Trinity, you don't have our Christian gospel. 
The third implication, stay far away from trying to illustrate the Trinity. We've all heard those illustrations that we all thought was good at one point in our life, but we realized later on, maybe you saw the Lutheran satire thing on YouTube and realized, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't believe that. I, I don't think that, that's not a good illustration. There is no way to illustrate the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery meant to humble us. So it is better simply assert what the Bible asserts. There's one in three. Three in one. Uh, second thing I want to exhort you to be as unashamedly God-centered as you can. Be as unashamedly God-centered as you can. I'm just trying to help us to uphold this, the doctrine of God in our churches. I believe this one sentence from the confessional statement should inform our doctrine of worship. He is the creator of all things visible and invisible. That's everything. He's the creator of all things visible and invisible and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. All glory and adoration, not some, not most, all glory and adoration. When we come together for worship, when, when you gather on Sundays for worship, there is one and only one who is worthy of all our thoughts, all our affections, all our preparation, all our adoration. And it's God. What this means is that to be seeker sensitive or visitor conscious or evangelistic on Sunday mornings, those are all besides the point. If someone is truly seeking. You know, that, that term seeker-sensitive is so lost because if someone was really seeking God, give them God. Give them the doctrine of God. If there is an, a, a visitor, hopefully we all have visitors on Sunday morning. If you have a visitor at your church, explain to your visitors how we're here to worship God. Explain to them about why you're God-centered. If there's an unbeliever who needs the gospel, oh, if you must explain the gospel to an unbeliever in your worship gathering, please explain who the God that we are worshiping is. There, there is no salvation from God or by God. There's no salvation from God unless we are explaining the, who the God of our salvation is. There is no negative in being as God-centered, God-focused, and God-adoring as you can be at a Christian worship service. I have to stress this because in far too many churches, the effort, the, the, the good, well-intentioned efforts to be seeker-sensitive and loving and hospitable, 
if you're just so focused and consumed, we've we got to watch out for the visitor, we've got to see how, how this, the visitors might respond to this or that, but it, it's so easy to slide into man-centeredness. And that's always the way we slide. I, I am as passionately God-centered as I think I can possibly be, and I'm always catching myself sliding towards man-centeredness. The only real way to avoid man-centeredness is to pray towards this reality of all glory and all adoration to God, especially in a Christian worship service. It must be driven by wanting God to receive all glory and adoration. Listen to Revelation chapter 4. I'll read verses 2 through 11. Revelation 4, verses 2 through 11. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he sat there, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads from the throne in the middle came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never cease. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I just want you to see two things. The angelic beings in heaven never cease to say, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty. And when they're worshiping, the other angelic beings are struck and feel like they got to worship too. Worship begets more worship from other worshipers. And they, they, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. As they gaze on God, as they give all their attention and adoration to God, they, they, all they can think to say is, holy, holy, holy. What else, what else can I say about him? Holy, holy, holy. All that's, all that's consuming their mind is the holiness and glory of God. And they never cease. That's really all, and you know, all the eyes on these angelic beings is this picture, this symbol of seeing with clarity. When you see God clearly, all you can be is consumed with his holiness and his glory. The other thing to note in this vision is the angelic elders say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for, the reason you're worthy is for you created all things. That, that's the reason God is worthy to be worshipped. No mention of the cross yet. No, no mention of redemption yet. That's Revelation chapter 5. But they want to make clear, you're worthy of worship because you created everything. The angelic beings understand God is worthy of our worship and the, the angels don't benefit from the cross like we do. They understand God is worthy just because of who he is. He's the creator God. You know, we're such a fallen people that we can even turn the cross into something man-centered. And we, we should be so thankful for what God has done for us in the cross. But if we're only focusing on what he has done for us, sometimes we lose sight on simply worshiping him for who he is. And the angels in heaven understand that. So few implications. Well, I got three implications here of just being as, as unashamedly God-centered as you can in your church. First, do not be consumed. I'll, I'll word this carefully. Do not be consumed with people on Sunday mornings. Worship God. Just lead your people to worship God. We, we can all get so consumed with how is this going to affect people? How are people going to respond to this or that? Is this too long or too short? This part of the service? Do we need to, how are, how are people going to react to this? Stop. Just worship God on Sunday mornings. It is first and foremost a time for your church to give God all glory and adoration. What will God think of this or that? that? That really needs to be the question always at the forefront of our minds. Will God be pleased by this or that in our worship service? Let your staff meetings be filled with that question. Is God pleased by this or that? Second implication Sing songs that are not merely 
gospel-centered or Christ-centered or cross-centered. And you should sing those songs, and we got more than enough. Uh, I'm sure you, you, you have more than enough songs that, that sing the, about the cross in your repertoire of songs. Keep those flowing. Just keep those cross-centered songs flowing, but also have a category for songs that are just like immortal, invisible, God-only wise. Just sing about the character of God. And a third implication is to make sure even that you teach evangelism as a God-centered task. We should want people to come to Christ, not only so that the individual can be forgiven, but so that this individual can become a worshiper. No desire to worship God means they will hate heaven. Evangelism should be full of the doctrine of God because it's God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Sometimes the way we can preach evangelism, I'm, I'm guilty of this like everybody else, sometimes the way we can talk about it is that God was reconciling the world to eternal life in Christ. He's not reconciling the world to something abstract. He's reconciling the world to himself in Christ. We, we need to let unbelievers know who they need to be reconciled to. So even our evangelism should be full of the doctrine of God. We, we want to connect people to Almighty God. That's, that's what the task of evangelism is about. It, we want to connect them to the church. We want them to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Main thing, though, we want them to be connected to God. That's where John Piper gets that idea that God is the gospel. If that's what he meant, I didn't read that book. If that's what he meant by that, I think that's right. Third and last thing, so I'm two-thirds of the way done with this talk now. Last third of this talk. Be as relentlessly cautious with the doctrine of God as you can. Be as relentlessly cautious with the doctrine of God as you can. Our religion is all about who God is. If you mess with God, you no longer have the Christian religion. This is why the confessional statement is just a recapitulation of historic reform thought through the centuries on who God is. God has been known over the centuries by other Christians. We are not the only Christians who have ever known God. We're not the first Christians to figure out things about God. God has been known by his people all through the ages. So we don't want to mess around with the doctrine of God. Let me read Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6 to help you understand the seriousness of this doctrine. Exodus 20, verse 3, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's clear. I'm the one you need to worship. God is the one we must worship. You cannot worship other gods. We have to worship the right God. That's the first commandment. Second commandment, Verses 4 through 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, if you don't think deeply about the difference between the first and second commandment, you might think, well, I guess the first and second commandment are just saying the same thing. They're both commanding the same thing. Don't worship other gods. You shall have no other gods before me, and then don't worship idols, because idols are false gods. You don't want to worship false gods, so both worship the right god. But it's interesting, the first time Israel breaks the second commandment is in Exodus 32, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and Aaron forms that golden calf for the people of God, and he does not say, now here, you know what, Moses is taking too long. Let's worship the Egyptian god. I, I guess, I don't know what they're doing on Sinai. Let's just worship the Egyptian god. That's not what he says. He says, here, here is your god who brought you out of Egypt. He was saying, this is representing Yahweh. This is representing our god. The reason God says you must not make carved images is he's, not, he's saying, you cannot represent me with a carved image. You cannot worship me the way other religions worship their gods. When you do that, you're really misconceiving of me. You cannot think about me wrongly. I cannot be confined into this thing. If you think about me that way, it is like worshiping a different god. You're not thinking of me anymore. Even if you're trying to think of me, if you think I can be represented, you're not thinking of me. That's why he gets jealous with that kind of worship. The second commandment is really, do not worship me in the wrong way. You can get the right God and still worship the right God in the wrong way. And it is just as evil as worshiping the wrong God. He wants us to think of himself accurately. We must guard the doctrine of God relentlessly in our churches. So closing implications. I got three things. One, be vigilant to guard all the doctrine of God in your church. Sunday school classes, sermons, songs, prayers, whatever your role is in the church, however you can have a hand in making sure there's good doctrine of God coming out in all these different avenues. You, you got to do whatever you can with songs, you know. Sing songs that are going to be sung 200 years from now. And a good way to think of that, I just thought about that this, this, th thought about this, this week. We should try to ask ourselves, if, if this modern song was sung 200 years ago, would, would, would Christians 200 years ago have liked this? Or if you really want to test yourself, think about like 500 years ago, would Martin Luther approve of this song that we're about to sing? And that's a good way to cut your repertoire in half there. But just, you want to sing songs that are going to stand the test of time. Don't sing songs in your worship service about God's love being reckless or Jesus driving a car for you. You, you want to be sure that 200, 400 years from now, it's full, rich, 
doctrines that we're singing about. Songs that uphold the doctrine of God always last. Second implication, closing implication, teach as much theology as you can. You know the word theology, just that word is the study of God. Theology is the knowledge of God. Some churches think they must stay away from theology if they are to, to attract more people. And I say, yeah. That will attract more people. But attract them to what? We only know God because of what he has said about himself. So give people as much of what God has said about himself as you can. And third and last thing, submit to the historic doctrine of God. Learn from others who have gone before us about who God is. All kinds of problems arise when we get innovative about the doctrine of God. Let me pray. Lord God.